0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, let's get started. Thank you all so much for being here today. We're so excited to learn with you and with this great scholar and to partner today with Temple Emmanuel in Denver. Um, one of our great Denver partners in this program today, uh, and to learn with Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth, who is the director of Mosaica, the Religious Peace Initiative, which serves as a network of insider religious mediators advancing both religious peace and mitigating crisis situations in Israel and the Middle East. Roth has work, also works to connect religious leaders to the tens of community mediation and dialogue centers throughout Israel that Mosaica supports. In addition, Roth is a core faculty member at Ilan University's graduate program for conflict management, resolution, and negotiation, where he teaches graduate courses on religious peacebuilding, as well as supervises graduate students. His book, Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism, Text, Theory, and Practice, was published by Oxford University Press in spring 2021. Roth was the founder and director of the Party Center for Judaism and Conflict Resolution, the Machloket Matters Projects, and the Nine Adar, Jewish Week of Constructive Conflict, Dibor HaChadash, Israeli Week of Mediation and Dialogue. Roth is a regular ret- uh, lecturer for MEJDI Tours, National Geographic, and was a senior research fellow at George Mason University's Center for World Religions, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution. Roth holds a PhD from bar University's graduate program for conflict management, resolution, and negotiation, an MA in Talmud from Hebrew University, uh, bachelor's in education in Jewish philosophy from Herzog Teachers College and studied for eight years in Yeshiva's Harezion, during which time he received Orthodox rabbinic ordination. Today's topic, very important, Third-Party Peacemakers in Judaism Text Theory and Practice, based upon his new exciting book, which I hope you will pick up and which Alex will share a link to in the chat. And we appreciate all of you who are here with us in the Zoom and all of you who are uh, listening by recording and we, after the presentation, we'll have the opportunity to engage in, in questions and conversation. Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Rosh for having me and uh, having this opportunity to join in your amazing and expanding uh, national, global Beit Midrash. Um, it's very exciting. Thank you so much. So um, I would like to do uh I'm going to do a shared screen and I want to do um, do a little bit of uh, discussing um, about uh, about my book um, and as it's called Third Party Peacemakers in Judaism, Text Theory and Practice and talk about exactly that. I want to try to connect some of the different chapters in terms of the text um, and the practice, especially. Um, that I'm engaged in today in, uh, in, in the conflicts going on in, in Israel, in the Middle East, um, and then open it up for questions. So, um, I want to start, so the way I divided up by my, my talk is to, uh, is to take you through some of the different chapters, just to give you a little bit of like a taste, uh, from what, what, what did I try to do and why did I do it? I'll mention, uh, Rishmulli, this is not my book talk, but another publication that I wrote recently, um, which connects into my work today called Insider Religious Mediators, Advancing Religious Peace in the Context of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, also came out and was also recently published. But um, I'll talk, I'll touch upon it a little bit. Um, but I'm going talk specifically about um, the text theory and practice of Jewish, Jewish mediation, Jewish peacemaking. Um, and, and my book starts, uh, in the preface, I tell a little bit of the story of how I got to this. Um, I start with the Hebrew Talmud department, uh, really just read, read through some of my bio, but, uh, the truth is the story for me gets started in the, um, in the Beit Midrash, in the yeshiva of Yeshivat Haritzion, um, the yeshiva where I uh, merited to study for for many years um, in 1993. And uh, I started my studies as an 18 year old um, just around the time that the Oslo Accords were being signed. And the opportunity of having text in a Beit Midrash uh, environment constantly be encouraging, um, us as young 18 year olds to understand how to argue different sides and to hold up opposing truth, um, about very obscure ancient disagreements. And then having that exact same, uh, intellectual, spiritual, emotional strength to be able to apply that to the most difficult, uh, contentious, religious political conflicts taking place at that time was amazing. And to watch our rabbis stand up and disagree for and against um, while all around the country, there were mass demonstrations of people not being able to listen, not being able to think, uh, to understand the other side. All that brought me into a journey of wanting to connect uh, over the years between my passion for Jewish text and my passion for the field of conflict resolution and peace building. Um, but in a book, which was mostly, uh, which 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 was an academic publication, I started from my, uh, I start from the year uh, I think it was two thousand and two, two thousand and three, where I was studying at the Hebrew Talmud department, um, which no one knew what that was until this movie came out called Footnote, uh, that uh, won many prizes about this very obscure little Talmud department that we deal with ancient text and ancient languages and. And while I'm sitting there studying ancient Greek and manuscripts, things are literally blowing up around us in Jerusalem in, in the country. And I began this journey of how can I connect in a, in a very clear way between all these textual skills and between the life and the world that, that's going on around us? Um, and I started looking for where can I do a, where can I do studies on uh, Judaism and conflict resolution, religion and, and, and conflict? And I ended up finding my way into Bar University, where I was motivated. Um, I, I continued to serve there as a faculty member. Um, that they were one of the first universities to explore uh, what does religion have to say about conflict? And so many, or I'll say, what does religion have to say about conflict resolution? <laughs> and this is going back 20 years ago, uh, when it was the core assumption that religion only helps to sustain conflict and cannot serve as a possible bridge uh, for conflict resolution and peace building. I became exposed to, uh, to a very important book, who who then subsequently became a friend and mentor, I believe of myself and of Rav Shmuelis, uh, Rabbi Dr. Mark Gopin, who wrote a very important book, uh, that I think impacted both of us in a lot of his work, called Eden to Armageddon, where he started a chapter about Jewish peacemaking. And what does that look like? And he wrote within that chapter on Jewish peacemaking. He wrote just a couple of pages about um, about Aaron, uh, older brother of Moses, serving as a peacemaker. A little bit, a little bit about Rabbi Mayer talking about him as a peacemaker. And I remember reading those two pages and be like, "That's it. There's only there's only those two. There's nothing else that 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 within our text uh, teaches us about." mediation about third-party peacemaking there must be more and I went ahead and I and I I wrote my PhD about um about our own as a pursuer of peace comparing it to uh uh, other cultural models um I'll I'll note that uh, I began a journey of wanting to uh um to write a book about this um uh but then, as I was finishing my PhD and starting to think about writing a book, uh, another—I I was doing one last search to make sure I knew everything there was in the in the field and I hadn't forgot anything—and then all of a sudden, this amazing book comes up of fundamentals of Jewish conflict resolution, and I had a, almost a heart attack of saying, "Seriously, somebody else has just written about this? Like, there's got to be two Jews writing about Jewish conflict resolution? I got a conflict." Um, and I thought this is going to be like huge, intractable, violent. Con- Turns out, thank God we were able to mediate it because he wrote about all Jewish texts relating to interpersonal or, um, intergroup conflict without a third party mediator. He drew the line of his, stu- his study. This is Rabbi Howard Kaminsky, I highly recommend this book, um, anger management, how to have difficult conversations, how to engage in sacred disagreement, comparing the Jewish text to contemporary uh, scholarship. But he did not discuss the role of of the third party, of the mediator, when I wanna bring two sides together. So thank God. Um, But I didn't only engage in academic studies and and in text study, I also had the opportunity for 20 years to teach at an amazing institution, uh, the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. <clears throat> where I subsequently opened up a Center for Judaism and Conflict Resolution that continues today to uh, to promote a program called Machlok It Matters, How to Disagree Constructively, of how text can impact the brain's ability of how we engage in difficult um, political, ideological disagreement within our synagogues, within our homes. And then a few years ago, another common friend of myself and uh, and Rav Shmuley, um, Rabbi Michael Malkior, one of the great religious peacemakers um, and social justice uh, leaders of our of our time uh, told me to stop teaching about him and about religious peace uh, academically and come join him. And that's when I became the director of uh, Mosaic of the Religious Peace Initiative. So the book is literally about uh, third party peacemaking in text, very heavy on the text, uh, constantly looking at what are the different theories that are going on here in terms of conflict studies and what are the implications for practice, both from an education perspective, in terms of programming that I ran for many years uh, with schools and training rabbis and, and, and training um, lay leaders, but also uh, in my own experience in the field of, of serving as a third party peacemaker in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. So um, I'll just, again, I'm going to give you like a little, like a, like a, like a little taste of each of the different chapters um, and some core some core uh, take, take, go, take homes. Um, <clears throat> if I have time, we'll do a little bit more of an in-depth, but we'll see, I wanna leave some time for questions. So I start my chapter with, from Muhammad Sulha. This is the most difficult chapter for Jews, easiest chapter for non-Jews. All my, all my rabbi friends are like, couldn't get through that chapter, it was way too hard. And all the academics are like, that one's the one I understood. Um, but i it was important for me to frame uh, before we look at, at Jewish text to create a a um a uh, a conceptual framework um that all the great religions, first and foremost, have their ideal uh, peacemaker, okay? Um, you know, there isn't a a program on Christianity and peace building or mediation that won't start talking about won't start with talking about. Jesus as a role model um, I deal I work a tremendous amount um, in the uh, with, with, with Muslim partners uh, in the Arab sector uh, with Palestinians and every time there's any conversation about interpersonal mediation or <coughs> intergroup mediation, they're always going to start with Muhammad. As, the, uh, as a mediator. That before he was a prophet, he was first and foremost a mediator, and that's what allowed him to gain the reputation that he had <clears throat> and the legitimacy within his community that he was able to reconcile between warring groups um, and to serve as that type of role model. And it was actually reading some of that literature, uh, in addition to Mark Gopin's book, um, people uh, like Muhammad Abu Nimr, that was one of the first uh, scholars to write about Islam and conflict resolution that I was like, wait a minute, how come nobody's written anything about Jewish conflict resolution? Like, what about Jewish models? Like, there's gotta be something about this. It can't just be about, uh, other religions. So in that chapter, I kind of look at what are those different models? Um, how, how, what, what, how these different religions kind of portray their, 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 uh, paradigmatic peacemaker. But I also was curious at looking at anthropological studies. Um, you know, because I was interested in not looking only at Jewish texts from a, an ideal perspective, but also from a practice. Like, what actually happened historically in Jewish communities in terms of mediators? We know about our own. But I want to know about what were different minhagim, what were different customs that were taking place within these communities. And to create a conceptual framework to be to be to, to to for comparison, I want to look at different cultural models, not religious models, different cultural models of, of mediation and peacemaking. Um, the most famous of which is is the Arab Solcha model, not necessarily Islamic, because as I'll point out in my book, Jews did Solcha. Um it wasn't, it was a cultural model where the mediator is very different than Western liberal uh you know mediation. The, the, the mediator, the third party, is not a neutral, professional outsider. It's a well-respected insider that's deeply connected to the, uh, to the different parties in conflict, um, that does shuttle diplomacy back and forth, meeting with each side, and then brings them to a reconciliation ceremony. Very different than liberal uh, Western thinking, which is always bring people together and then let have them talk directly. Try that in the Middle East. It won't work. So um that also has implications this chapter for for our work that we do in uh as 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 Rav mentioned we support uh through mosaica 70 community mediation centers <coughs> which include 10 in the arab sector now when you want to create a community mediation center in the arab sector you have to make it totally culturally uh, appropriate because what's what's going to work in Tel Aviv is not going to work in the Bedouin city of Rahats. Um Even who the mediator is, how are they operating? So what happens when you train a bunch of sulchaim? Um, men sometimes uh, also um, we have courses for women, uh, sheikhot, Sometimes they're together, it's fascinating how they can work out the seating. Sometimes the rabbis, I'll talk about that, they can't sit with the rabbaniyot, but the sheikhs and the sheikhot, we found ways for them to sitting together. Um, but how do you create that model? And this book has actually helped in the research in working with the with the Arab sector, with the municipalities, with, the, with others to think about how do you build the right model to counter the very, very significant problem of uh, uh, violence in the Arab sector, violence in the Arab sector of the, the Arab minority within Israel. Um, how do you make that actually be able to prevent conflict? So that's our Sheikhs as Mediators programs. Um, chapter two, I go into own. okay, who, you know, I think uh, if, you, if you catch, you know, any, you know, uh, Somewhat knowledgeable, you know, Jew who knows a little bit about rabbinic literature, they'll know. Aaron, of course, the peacemaker, right? People who only know the Bible, will be like, wait a minute, which chapter was that that I missed? Because I don't remember him really doing like a lot of peacemaking there. I remember him doing a little bit of like, you know, I don't know, giving into golden golden calf stuff. But where where was he? Am- so it's a rabbinic concept, and I explain how that evolved and what were the rabbis trying to do in a way of recrafting the persona of our own from being a, a uh, from being a, um, a high priest to being, um, you know, we're only, only the children of a high priest can become a priest. Only, you know, I only can be a co if my father was a co by the way, full disclosure, I am a co So that's why <laughs> I'm sure I got involved in this work in the first place. But when they say be a student of our own, it's, Reshaping him as a, as his midot, his his attributes that can be um, that can be, um, that can that can be learned and lived by anyone. So, I was interested in looking at all of the different, um, not just the the Aaron the texts that are from the Tanitic time period, but I was also interested in looking at 1500 years of commentary, because. When I'm thinking about towards practice, if I can find really important commentary and wisdom, Jewish wisdom, about peacemaking, very often it's going to be in the commentaries on how Aaron was acting. You know, what does it mean that there's no one more humble and lowly of spirit than a peacemaker? Well, you know, that implies that peacemaking can really be egotistical. <laughs> so You better try to check your ego and role model humility as you engage different parties. Um, um, the, uh, but, but also this has inspired a lot of the work that I, uh, that I, that I do today and I share a little bit, um, you know, uh, in the work, uh, of, of mediating between, um, religious Zionist rabbis and Islamic movement, uh, sheikhs or or sheikhot and And just the way you see how our own um, met with each side separately, built tremendous trust, tremendous trust, um, brings them together, brings about reconciliation. Um, There's more that I can say about that, but I'll I'll hold off. And we also over the years at at Pardes, we turn these into middle school, high school curriculum. Like, how do you teach this in schools? Uh, And we're doing that more and more in Israel as well. Like, how do you have this become core culture? that when you're studying rabbinic texts, that you also learn skills of mediation. When you're studying skills of mediation, you learn that it's also Jewishly inspired. Chapter three, this is where I try to say, okay, let's go beyond our own. We know that our own was a peacemaker. Maybe we didn't know everything about, oh, I forgot to mention one really cool tidbit. See the guy on the bottom there of the screen? He's, not, he's a saint from the Atlas Mountains. Uh, what was interesting to me was that um, the our own model of a um, single spiritual leader who's in charge of making peace between humanity and God. Uh, and then therefore also being charged with making peace between different people is very, very similar to the anthropological studies that have been written about the saints of the Atlas mountains, which are Sufi um, that They are like a tribe that live alongside the Berbers, but every time they're in charge of like their spiritual kind of, you know, work, Um, but, and it's hereditary, meaning it's passed on from generation to generation. And every time uh, there's a conflict, an individual uh, saint will go and get involved. And they're known to be people that they themselves um, are are not engaged in conflict. so there's something about the our own model as a, um, like if you think about the, the, the Israelites as like kind of basically a Bedouin people um, with this priestly class that kind of lives alongside in the camp of the other tribes. And our own as a peacemaker is supposed to be, again, making peace between humanity and God with sacrifices that we know well from the Bible. But the rabbis are kind of filling in the blanks that was almost obvious to them. Uh, not that they knew about the Atlas Mountains, but these are this is the way it worked. You know, is that you would have these, and and uh, what's interesting is that the tension within the, the the Muslim world that happened between you know who's a spiritual leader of a saintly class where it's passed on uh, from generation to generation in your blood to being uh, you know one that you can in, as it as 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 people became more urbanized and less Bedouin, um, people became scholars, and it had to do with your merits and how much knowledge you had in Islamic law that you became part of the ulama. So, the transition of the our own model of leadership, priestly model of leadership, but also peacemaker being turned into basically a rabbinic figure, be the student of Arun, not be the son of our own. Right is something that I think connects into into what we know from other anthropological um, historical uh, transitions. Chapter three, I wanted to um, uh, continue looking at classic rabbinic literature, meaning we're talking about um, the, the 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 early rabbinic literature, midrash and Talmud. up to fifth century. Again, I'm also looking at the commentary on that literature, but the key sources that I'm looking for of where are their models, where are their stories of third-party peacemakers. Um, I was looking in rabbinic texts. So I start off talking about Rabbi Mayer that I mentioned that that Mark Gopin noted, but I found another story of him. But there are not only like these, you know, well-respected high, uh, you know, uh, rabbis, but there is also a wonderful story that I love uh, it's known to be one of the favorite stories of the Baal Shem Tov, of uh, the two gestures, the two badchanim that uh, they used their humor and humility um, as very, very simple people to go and make peace between people. Very different than like the most respected person in the whole Israelite camp of Aaron. Like really only he can do this? And that text is saying, no, actually anyone can do it. Use your your, your, your personal wisdom and and um, and it's a beautiful story contrasted with a rabbi who's not so much a peacemaker. Um, I looked really hard for years. Uh, I, I said, I've been teaching at Pardes. I had taught at Pardes, I no longer teach at Pardes, but I teach, taught at Pardes and I taught uh, grad students. And I remember the day when some of my um, female grad students at Bar Ilan said, uh, where are the women? <laughs> Which is always the question. Where are the women? And uh, it's a question, you know, in my work today in 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 mediating in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Where are the women? How much are they involved? And we involve them. Happy to talk about that if we have time for questions. But I was interested in from a textual perspective. But again, Talmud is very much written by men for men. Um, and but it's not only that. It's also that when when you look at um, ancient models of peacemaking. And, and mediation, as opposed to contemporary models, um, it was always the men who are the who is the well respected insider. but what 's important to understand is that women played an incredibly important role in these very traditional uh, patriarchal societies in peacemaking, but it was much, much more behind the scenes they 're not the ones leading the public ceremony in the square, bringing the sides together to a, a public reconciliation process. But the whispering and the behind the scenes, so many stories are of women doing that. So with using, with knowing that that theoretical studies and anthropological studies about how women have played a very important role in traditional society peacemaking, it was able to help me actually identify two rabbinic stories uh, of how women played that role. And to say that's actually third party peacemaking that women played in very, very hierarchical, patriarchal, you know, pre-modern society. Um, So I wrote about a a Roman noblewoman who played a very important role in helping avoid a violent war between the Jews and the Romans and doing exactly the way uh, the literature says women can serve as, as mediators. That she was an insider connected to both sides and she was able to give advice in order to prevent another bloody Maccabees versus Greek type of war in a very nonviolent way. And it's actually that story that becomes the very first example of nonviolence uh, within Judaism. And actually, what does it mean to go out and demonstrate in a persuasive or what they call a con- convert, con- con- conversive way, conversive, you can convert the other side's opinion. So it's a great story. Every time we're doing nonviolent demonstrations and advocating, we use that story. Um, but a lot of those stories in those first couple of chapters, I think people know, I think people know more of those stories because it's, it's, people are more aware of Talmud and Midrash in general, but I wanted to try to push it and look also in early, uh, in, in medieval and early, uh, modern rabbinic literature. Cause I'm looking for, for both paradigmatic, but also, um, but also historical models like what actually happened? What precedents of, of Jewish peacemaking existed out there? So I start my chapter, uh, chapter four, with uh, one of the heroes of my book called Rabbi Yosef Um, When I I'm originally uh, as a child, uh, I grew up in a small little town called Syracuse, New York, and I'm like seriously, there's a rabbi named Rabbi Syracusti, and he was a peacemaker. Like he is very much get a feature in my book. So who is Rabbi Yosef Uh He was the first rabbi after the expulsion of the Jews from Sicily, which happened at the same time as the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. He was the first rabbi that ends up in Sfat, in Safed. And there are only just Sufi Muslims there at the time. Like afterwards, like another, you know, 500 rabbis are going to come from, from Spain and create like one of the most important rabbinic centers uh, you know, of that time period, as, as many of you know. But he was the first rabbi to get there. Um, and and he becomes inc- very well known uh, in that world. He leaves almost nothing, one letter, one letter that he left. But what's interesting is that uh, I found in, uh, through through scholarship, not me, but uh, I found in a book about letters from the Cairo Geniza, uh, of a eulogy about him, how he served as a peacemaker, also amongst the poor, but um, another rabbi, a mystic, two generations later is saying like one of the great peacemakers of the Jewish people ever lived here and his name is Rabbi Yossi Siracusti and he knew how to make peace even amongst the non-Jews. And that's so incredibly important, meaning that the Muslims would ask him to be their mediator. And that that plays a really important role because our own is really very intra-Jewish. And when I'm looking for texts, that push the needle just a little bit to say like, can this be also a more inclusive conversation? Where are their texts that say, I have an obligation to be making peace, not only within my own community, but in the broader community. Like imagine if every fifth grader in this country uh, grew up knowing that text as well as they know about our own love peace and pursue peace. I think that plays a very important role. And, And there are later halakhic authorities that actually refer to that example as that there's a commandment to pursue peace. I go into Hasidic masters uh, and how they pr- how they pursued peace. Spoiler: Sometimes they would be praying together, and then how Mitznagdim made peace. S- spoiler: They would be learning together. Okay, <laughs> it's like everyone with their what brings you together. But uh, a great story of Volozhin: Who are the mediators? How do they mediate? Um, and and their contract, their actual compromise, their actual mediation agreement, and 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 what did that work? And how do they do both? mediation and but the absolute all-time hero the all-time hero uh of the book which which is you know it was when i f- first started writing about him is when i knew i had enough material to write the book is the chida um the chida who i i think he's in the top 100 all-time rabbis like all-time rabbis um i want to push him up to the, like the top 10 like, that was kind of my, like, I want to get him into, like, you know, at least the top, at least the polls of the top 25. Uh, he's very, very well known, wrote over 130 books. He he grew up, he, we're talking 18th century Jerusalem. So he's like a Palestinian Jew, uh, culturally. Roots in Morocco, but also Ashkenaz. Uh, there's so much I can say about him and I, I could give just a whole course on him. But what I love about him in the story, I wrote eight stories, just eight of the stories were about him um, because he left his personal diary, um, his personal diary, which, which, which all of a sudden like allows you to hear in first person, one of the greatest Gdolim of all times, like how they're just seeing the world and what's going on. And and he traveled on behalf of the small Jewish community in Hebron <coughs> to go raise money throughout Europe. And he goes from city to city, but he doesn't, for him raising money was, was, was a mitzvah. He wasn't just a schnur. It was like rock star showing up at your town, like the coming to town and like everyone's running to go greet him. And, and just his relationship with his wife and then pass away. And like, just how he's like dealing with his depression, like, but then he's like, every time he went there, he, he, he felt so strongly that we're in darkness and we are in exile, like spiritual exile, because there's so much hatred in the world. And like, he would go to a community and he had such a reputation that here's a well-respected insider outsider coming in. Everyone started bringing their problems and he would talk about like how he would go ahead and do these reconciliation processes Um, and and try to resolve the conflict. I have a really long, if we have time, maybe I'll touch upon my favorite story. I brought it in the slides. But um, if you're ever travel through Europe, I really recommend taking the Chida with you. It drives my family a little bit nuts because when we're sitting in Venice, like I have the kids be like, now I want you to find every single place that the Chida visited. When you go to like Paris and he talks about what was it like meeting the king? He was doing a lot of interface stuff. Also, he's just a rock star. Or like in in Amsterdam, like every every Jewish community that the Chidab visited, it's the pride of their community because it was like the Rambam showing up. But as he grew in his ability to be a peacemaker, basically doing the Jewish solcha. Okay, Uh, he is his 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 his, you know people would keep on asking him to do more and more work. The story that I want to talk about, if we have time, I don't know if we're gonna have time, is how he spent eight months just working out a major conflict that the Pope himself had tried resolving and failed. And the Khidah used certain wisdom of how to do that. And I use that model today of how to train rabbis and, and educators and also evident an inspiration to not give up in, in our work in, in, in the most difficult conflicts here. So it's also, th- this chapter is really important to me because we engage um, rabbis as mediators. And when I'm talking about rabbis, I'm talking about like primarily the more right-wing religious Zionist rabbis, the rabbis that are not necessarily connected to the Valley Beit Midrash, if, <laughs> as Rishmuli might know, um, people that would most likely all disagree with everything Rishmuli has to say. Uh, those are the ones that I'm interested in engaging um, and engaging them to first and foremost, to see themselves as mediators in their communities, peacemakers, and then to the sheikhs. Okay. Um, it's being recorded, so I'll be careful. Um, the fifth chapter, I wanted to look at lay leaders, not w- religious leaders, but like talk to me about Min Hagim, customs, like wh- how did Jewish communities function? And to me, this is also really just really, really important and impacts the work that, that we're doing today, which is, um, that, Throughout Sephardi communities, Ashkenazi communities, um, you can find traces, just traces, of how there were people that were known in their community as Rodef Shalom, M'tavchei Shalom, Pashranim, and Nichbadim. Meaning there actually were quasi-roles uh, of people that were known as the community peacemakers. Uh, the same way today you have Solchaim, you have the Solcha leaders, um, but they were called Rodef Shalom. Meaning the concept of a Rodef Shalom, a Pursuer of Peace, was not just a Midrash. Of our own, but it actually was a living tradition within Jewish communities. Um, and just to give you, and this, this a lot of it I find in um, in rabbinic responsa literature, where it's a great resource for finding out what a Jews you like to fight about because they would have all their fights in community and then write to the rabbi of like help, we don't know what to do. So in the question, which is a, an amazing window into what's going on in community life, they would talk about how these pursuers of peace had entered in and tried to help. Now, of course, if they're talking to the greatest rabbi of the generation, it's generally because they didn't succeed. Um, But there's really interesting characteristics, which is, if you look, the earliest example I find is Spain, 12th century in the Rimi Gash. But it says, and pursuers of peace entered in between them. Prague and people of truth pursuers of peace entered themselves in between you. Italy and the distinguished ones pursued peace and truth worked Um, Morocco, it's the most developed and pursuers of peace. We even have the names of some of them entered between. There's a few characteristics that you find in, whether it be in Sephardi or Ashkenazi communities, one, I never found a pursuer, a peace, always pursuers of peace as opposed to the Aaron model where he was like the saint that he worked on his own. These were well-connected insiders. That it's my connections. It's your connections. Let's create like kind of this this delegation of of mediators that everybody uses their web, their networks of connection. Um, And so it's always in the plural. They are very proactive, like our own, that they didn't wait to be invited in. It's not like somebody came knocking on their door and be like, hey, we got a family dispute or a community dispute. Um, but there, but if there was a conflict, they got involved. They were involved in both compromise agreements, like what they're were, what were called psharot, that that are contracts, non coercive. Sometimes they would even have the local baiting religious court sign on it, which is what's done today in mediation. That you'll bring it to the court and give it kind of like a stamp. Um, and they would also uh, do uh, reconciliation processes. So you have this basically concept of of, of community mediation that, that within each of these communities, um, and I'll talk about this at the end, the same way you have like, what is a healthy community? Well, you have people that are involved in education. You have people that are involved in raising sadaka, You have people that are involved in, in helping escort the burying of the dead and visiting the sick. And, 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 and well, you also had people that were the volunteer mediators and that tradition has been lost really since, um, since the, 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 the unfolding or, or the, uh, you know, the, the collapse or the, the moving of all these different ancient communities, um, you know, for various reasons, many of them uh, in the 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, when they, when they picked up and moved to Israel, these ancient communities of Morocco and, and customs were kind of lost. By the way, the same thing with Ethiopian Jews, the Shmagla model, Uh, is very, very interesting and has been researched about their, their model of, of, uh, of mediation within the Jewish communities of, of the Ethiopian community, which is actually still continuing to exist in Israel today. And they actually are recognized by the Israeli authorities. Um, and it's a whole other conversation. So when I think about my work today in the, in the world of community mediation, okay. Um, so as I mentioned, we, we, we one of our programs, we operate a, a government tender for 15 years um, where we support the, the 50 community mediation centers and 20 initiatives, including in the Arab sector, including in what are called the Jewish Arab mixed cities, where I do a tremendous amount of work, where you have, you know, basically <laughs> Palestinian citizens of Israel living alongside um, often you know, religious Zionists, <laughs> people all in the same building and being able to mediate between all of them and between connecting rabbis and sheikhs to not just, we don't do dialogue groups, no dialogue groups. They're working in the field, solving problems, um, building trust. And, and we have a few thousand volunteer mediators. And I think Israel is actually quite unique in the way we've created a system of community mediation. America has community mediation. It's not as developed in my opinion, anyone you're welcome to disagree with me. It's not as developed as a national network, um, even on a state network in in certain places in, in, in Maryland, it's more developed in Los Angeles. It's developed, but it's not as developed as it is in Israel where you have these 70 centers, each one very culturally appropriate to their community, but we have a, we'll have like an annual uh, conference where about 600 volunteer community mediators will show up, which include, uh, you know, uh, Arabs, ultra Orthodox, religious Zionist people from, from settlements to secular people from Tel Aviv. And they're all talking about like, how are they doing things in their school? How are they building, do, doing, bu- building disputes, the same type of disputes that these ancient pursuers of peace were doing, they're doing today. And, you know, I just find it very important to kind of connect that, that point. So my final chapter, um, I talk about the text theory, Practice, and Scope of Third-Party Peacemaking, <clears throat> where um, where I end with uh, a text that actually already made it into the Valley Beit Midrash uh, talk once. Uh Rav Shmuel, if you're listening, I, I, I listened to your interview with Rabbi Malkior, and he used the end of my book, uh, where it talks about in the name of Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakai, where he says that a, 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 a somebody who's pursuing peace does it between individuals, between a husband and wife, between, um, and then he goes on between city and city, between nation and nation, and between uh, government and government. And we're talking first century, Rabbi Yochanan Mirzakai, time of the destruction of the first temple. And then I note that when Rashi, the great medieval commentary, uh, quotes that Midrash, he takes out the end of it, he says, a pursuer of peace is between individuals and between husband and wife and family. But he takes out the whole government, government, nation, nation, and it was, it was mentioned by by uh, one of the great commentaries on Rashi, Rav Chaim Hershenson, who was himself a an important pursuer of peace and justice, where he said that um, well, because in Rashi's time period, there was no point in a Jew thinking that they could one day be a mediator between governments, between states, between people. Uh, they were focused very, very much on, the, on, their, on, their, on their Jewish community with inside their, you know, uh, but Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakai, he's dealing with wars, he's dealing with armies, he's dealing with the Romans, he's dealing with, with, with and, you know, and, and, and so I wanted to kind of bring it to that point at the end of my book of like so many of these examples that I looked at were very, very interpersonal uh, family, you know, because that's where Jewish text was at, that's where Jewish peoplehood was at, but today, um, now, where uh where where Jews do have access and there is a uh there is a state of Israel where they're involved in a few intergroup conflicts just a few um and I'm not you know where where is the responsibility of people to get involved in bringing back that Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakkai? And that's what I mean by scope that it's not just the interpersonal but it's also on the interreligious uh component and um you know, most of my work is very much behind the scenes, and this is being recorded, so I won't talk about it too much. But, um, but our work, as I said, both in the uh, our our our, the, our work of the Religious Peace Initiative was founded by Rabbi Michal Malkior, who, as I mentioned, has already been featured in the Valley of Beit Midrash with his late partner Sheik Abdallah Nimr Darwish, who's the man on the on the right hand uh, side of the screen. Sheik Abdallah, for those of you who don't know, uh, I I I I would like to say. Um, I'm assuming people have never heard of him. If you have, you can write in the chat that you've heard of him. But I want to have a major Hollywood feature film about him, that the same way every person knows around the world who Martin Luther King was and who uh, Gandhi was, every single kid needs to grow up knowing who Sheikh Abdullah was. He is the founder of the Islamic movement, founder of the first Islamist jihad movement. And then he went through a transition during when he was in jail, how he restudied Islamic texts and then came out to be the strongest advocate for nonviolence and for religious peace, and mediating between Hamas and between Fatah and between Israel, and, and all of that work that he did is an incredible story. He left uh, many students who continue his work that we work with. One of them is a man that I hope you all know who he is, and if you don't, I highly recommend you Google him immediately. Dr. Mansour Abbas, who is uh, who is the head of the Islamic Party that makes up the Israeli government um who uh works uh day and night in the world of religious peace. Um so our work in cross-border work in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in throughout the Middle East and in the mixed cities is 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 part of that uh idea of of taking these Jewish sources and and <clears throat> and uh and and making them come alive as as a model. So I want to pause here. Um I'll do a closing text, but I want to leave some time for, for some questions now.
2: Okay, should I go first? That was the second hand raised. Okay. Thomas, I'm
3: going to go,
1: go for it.
2: Okay. All right. Um, just, uh, this might sound kind of weird to ask this question. But I was wondering about um, the relationship between mediators and Tesheva, and could this actually be used on a, um, a macro scale, basically? I mean, if that sounds like a weird question, <laughs> you I'm not
1: sure I understood the question. Okay. Between what? Between Teshiva, mediators and?
2: Tesheva and mediators, and could this be applied to a macro scale, like, you know, eventually big conflicts and stuff like that? You know, repentance, stuff like that. Does that make sense?
1: Were you saying Tisha above like as in.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I must have said it wrong. I'm sorry.
1: No, that's okay. That's okay. I just tried. To understand. So meaning like Tish above as in like a day mm-hmm. of, of where we remember like
2: mm-hmm. internal
1: hatred and things.
2: Okay. Basically what I was thinking in terms of is like making up for it. Like you remember all of that stuff inside of you, that your own part of it and mediators. She's saying mm-hmm. Tishuva.
1: Oh, okay, about repentance, you mean? Mm-hmm. Like about, yeah. about making amends with other people.
2: Yes. Okay, that's what oh, I'm I meant. Sorry. sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. I, that's I okay. I just want
1: to make sure. <laughs> I just want to make sure I understand your question. That's okay. That's fine. Um well, I would say that the chuva process is mm-hmm. one that's more interpersonal, meaning mm-hmm. it's how I ask forgiveness from you mm-hmm. or how you forgive me. That mm-hmm. is my colleague and friend Howard Kaminsky's book. He's got a whole chapter about a hundred pages of his book is all about how do you ask forgiveness? How do you forgive and comparing the laws of Tshuva of repentance with Mm -hmm. contemporary restorative justice and, and, and all that type of work. My, my book connects into that in the space of how do I, as a third party facilitate a Tshuva process Mm -hmm. of how somebody can kind of do that. So that does connect. But I also heard a second part of your question, which I think, which is like, how does this, how can this become, I think you're saying kind of practical on a larger, on a larger mm-hmm. scale. What, what do you mean by that? What would you, what do you have in mind? I'm
2: um, just thinking in terms of um, acknowledgement of you know, like one party has done, one country has done something wrong and the other one's done something wrong. And can we actually get this, you know, get this settled acknowledgement? In other words, a collective acknowledgement of wrongdoing on both sides, if that makes sense.
1: Well, you know, Again, I'll, I'll connect the two parts of your, my, my focus was much more on the identity and the, the methods and the values of the person trying to facilitate that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and, and part of the argument that I, I make in the, in the book and I, and I make in the work that I do today is that, you know, especially in my work in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's not lacking in what the solutions are. Uh, mm-hmm. What we're lacking in is who the right mediators are. And a um, any secretary of state or president or UN or quartet, while they play an important role, they have no ability to engage um, the most influential Islamic leaders in the world um, or the most influential rabbis in the world that are playing a role in um, in this intergroup conflict mm-hmm. being stuck. But if you can get Influential rabbis and sheikhs, Islamic leaders, working together to mediate between the most influential, then you could bring about a healthy reconciliation process. Yeah. So, my argument is it's not the message as much as the messenger and how the message is being portrayed and being framed. So, if you have an international court saying, go ahead and do a restorative justice process, a mm-hmm. truth and, and, and reconciliation, it will be strongly rejected. But if you have religious spiritual leaders that have the significant trust serving as insider mediators that are part of their community, but yet mediating, then you can have a game-changing moment. Yeah. But again, right. that's sort of on the border between this book and the other book that I just wrote that I, that I mentioned.
2: Okay, great. That, that's what I was looking for. And I'm sorry, you had to listen to my horrible- No,
1: no, no, I apologize <laughs> that, I, that, I, uh, that I, 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 I misunderstood. You were great, thank you. There was another question. Yeah, I've I've got a
3: quick uh, two questions. So the first, and I think actually Jonathan provided in the chat that the name of the person you mentioned was that Sheikh Abdallah. That's that's the name of the person. Sheikh Abdallah Nimer Darwish. Okay, um, can you write that in the chat? Well, I'll look it up. But um, yeah, um, uh, you piqued my interest in finding out who that person was um, and to do a little more research on that. But the other. I had I'm actually in Berlin Germany right now, and I was walking around the city today and on the um on the the external of a the building there were there was um the word peace mentioned in many different languages uh, all throughout the world and and one of the thoughts that came to my mind was is there a common definition of what peace is and um yeah you, you talked a lot about trying to arrive at peace and I'm just wondering, I, I'm sure you're operating to some degree from a, a definition of peace that you want to arrive at. And I'm just wondering if there, um, yeah, if there's a, a good definition and if there, if that's a, agreed upon I mean, it, and it's not necessarily, I think I would imagine that a word, um, used in a, in a specific language, um, has that same connotation, but I'm, I'm just wondering, yeah, is, is, um, are there different understandings of peace out there, um, in, in the world? Great questions.
1: So first I just shared in the link, the website that, uh, that explains about what, how religious peace works in the Middle East, uh, in these contexts, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there's a page about Sheikh Abdullah and some of the work, and you can see his videos. Um, it's not, it's at the, uh, it's part of the SDNO Abraham Center's Center for Middle East peace in their website called Progress is Possible. So you can you can check that out and, and learn more about Sheikh Abdallah and about his, his followers, etc. Um uh yeah, most conflicts in the world are over the definition of peace. I mean, everybody, peace is on my terms, right? Peace is what I want. Um, but in 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 the book, I relate to it, especially in, in chapter one, uh, where the commentaries get into the different definitions of shalom. Uh when, when they say Aaron was a pursuer of peace. Well, what does peace mean? And, um, and, and I'll, I'll say there's primarily two definitions of peace. Um, peace can mean, um, actually there's two definitions. I'll say like this. There's a distinction between the word peace and Shalom that peace comes in the word praxis, which is, you know, all about coming to an agreement and, um, ending a conflict of a disagreement Um, and that can be associated with more of a cold peace. The Barbanel, who is one of the authors that I write about, 15th century, talks about that people think that peace only comes in the absence of conflict. But he said, but the name of God is Shalom, Uh, the name of Allah is Salam, and Shalom comes from the word Shalem, Shlemut, wholeness, completeness, healthiness, Um, you know, when you say in Hebrew, "How are you?" you say "Maslomcha." How how is your peace? So, shlimut, wholeness, completeness, is much more literally holistic and more of a positive, warmer peace than just a sustain than just a peace agreement. Um, and there's all sorts of interesting implications because then, who is a pursuer of peace? Is it only a professional mediator, or is it anyone that can help bring about, you know, healthy relationships within a community? Um, it also, what's, what's interesting, I mentioned the chida, um, when he uses the word shalom, he's referring to basically that warmer piece of reconciliation. Like when two parties, when he talks about these two parties in the community that hadn't spoken with each other for 12 years, and he's like, I was able to bring them together. And there was shalom. They haven't resolved the structural parts of the conflict yet. That took him another eight months. They don't have the compromise agreement which is peace in the agreement context right a mediation agreement but they have shalom meaning they're they're whole again they're able to say shabbat shalom to each other they're able to share each other meals There there is started a reconciliation process of healing so those are the two. And what's interesting is that that split that the commentaries make is a split that people have said linguistically and culturally between different cultures around the world. Eastern, Eastern concepts of peace versus Western concepts of peace. and um, has a lot of implications. So that's chapter two. Maybe one more quick question before we wrap up.
2: Um, I think there was just a quick question in the chat. Uh, Jonathan said, "Wasn't the Sheikh Abdallah the son of the or a Hamas leader?"
1: That is incorrect. Uh, I apologize. Sheikh Abdallah Nimr Darwish was um, uh, predated Hamas, meaning when he started the Islamic uh, when he started Ustrat al Jihad, it was in the seventies. So yes, he sat in jail with the with Hamas leaders and 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 the leaders of Hamas uh eulogized him uh together with with rabbis and uh, and 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 all around different people uh, and they said the same way you were the first one to think of holy war. You predated us twenty years by twenty years. No one thought of it. You were the one who twenty years before your time thought about holy peace and religious peace. They said, we don't agree with you. We're not where you're at now, but we respect you. But he himself was certainly not a student of Hamas, uh, a son of Hamas, his, his, he actually grew up a communist like many Israeli Arabs. And then he, he became uh, religious later in life after 1967.
2: Uh, one more question here.
3: Can you give us an example of the methodology of peacemaking uh, and, and an example of it? So tell us how, how does one proceed? And then in real life, can you give us an example?
1: <laughs> in 30 seconds um you know it goes back to one of the themes that you find throughout the book which you know you're looking at historical models you're looking at midrashic models you're looking at you know all these are but what's very clear is the distinction between what i use in my work today of insider mediation versus professional outside mediation you know when um when two people have a dispute in liberal urban contexts, they want to go to somebody who doesn't know either of them who has a professional and a degree and is really, really going to help solve it. They'll pay them money and they'll, you know, they'll bring them through a very professional process and then they'll come up with an agreement and, and have resolved the conflict. And then they won't have that mediator being involved anymore. In, in this context, what you're going to have is an insider who's deeply connected to the grandparents, the grandchildren, the families, all the different sides, and they stay in the community. They're part of that community. You see that with Aaron, how he's very much connected to the different parties that he's reconciling, and he goes and meets with both of them separately, which is also very typical of non-Western approaches of, of peacemaking, uh, where he just sits with them, listens to their pain, and, and then brings about their, their, their reconciliation. And the same thing with the Chida, the story that I, I, you know, uh, that I didn't have a chance to share, but I think it's the most clear beginning to end example of exactly how Jewish peacemaking works, where he notices already from the very beginning, that it's more than the money that they're fighting over. There is a deep hatred between them. And, and if we're going to deal with that only talking about the money and the land, we're never going to be able to get anywhere because we have to try to figure out a way to tap into how to transform that hatred into love and his dual track peacemaking methodology, as I was kind of alluding to beforehand, how he's getting them first into a shared sacred space. And then he's got them walking together on Shabbat, like, well, he's holding their hands. So no one's going to say no to him. They all want to be close to him. And then how he like escorts them into this like party, like that niece comes from like, uh, Pizarro. And they're like, oh, they all want to be together. They're toasting each other. And he's sitting in the room and he's so awkward. He's like, oh, it's so, I'm like, I can't, I'm just like this nerdy rabbi. I want to just talk Torah. And they're all like getting drunk. and But he's like, but the peace is increasing, meaning they're liking each other again. They're remembering that they're family, that they're community, that they're reconciling. And then just all of his work of at the same time doing that peacemaking, that reconciliation, that healing of relationship work, he's also doing all that deep work of of uh, of how we actually going to have a non coercive agreed upon a, 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 a non agreement that both sides are going to sign on that will actually resolve the scarcity issues like the tangible parts of the conflict. Um, so you know, each one I'm looking at the identity, the methods, and then what are the implications for how we're doing peacemaking today? That that, that the that liberal peacemaking, Western peacemaking, has so much to learn from ancient wisdom. And especially when we're dealing with illiberal, deeply conservative type of ethno-national religious conflicts, we certainly need to tap into that type of wisdom if we want to be able to engage some of the most difficult conflicts that are so entrenched. So, as I said, lots of examples. Um, I have, do I have a minute? Oh, no, I'm out of time. I want to do, I want to just share one last Alex, can I have, can I have one minute left?
2: Yeah, sure. Go for it.
1: uh, I'm charging into the minute and a half video that you did in the beginning. Um, I just wanted to to end. Wait, you can't see those. Um, I just wanted to end quickly with my book cover and text. Um, Just give me one second.
2: So
1: my, my, you know, looking for a book that book cover that kind of captures all these ideas, which are was, was not easy. And I'll just share with you very, very briefly that one of the texts that I love um, that became the cover of my book is this text by Rahim Falaji, 18th century Izmir, where he said, May God in his mercy give me the strength to make a special charity fund committee that should comprise special individuals who will serve as Rot Shalom." as is the case for the whole, for other holy committees like Heber Kadishas, in order that as soon as they hear of a conflict between two individuals or within the community, they should be able to dedicate all of their efforts and make peace between them. Their membership, in this committee is conditional on their taking a formal strict oath that they will not become angry at all, even if people curse them and hit them, and they should be careful not to speak harshly and to be patient. And there is no doubt that if they do this, they bring redemption closer And and it goes without saying that they themselves should not be engaged in conflicts at all and should be forgiving. And a great gift comes out of such a gathering for the sake of heaven, And there is no need to spend money at all on this, except for a community official who will be responsible for gathering the Rufay Shalom together. So that text, which is basically the vision that every Jewish community, every community needs to have their volunteer peacemakers, their mediators, every family needs their mediators, every community, every country um, that get involved. So I had that text by uh, written up on a parchment on a, on a uh, cloth, uh, by a friend of mine who's in high tech, but also writes uh, *Sefirot Torah*. Um, like the way the ancient—what's um, um, it called? Uh, hypocritic, hypocritic oath. Doctors, like you know, the way you have the uh, to have that be like the 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 Rodfay Shalom* oath, um, and then we give that out to rabbis and uh, *Rabbanimot* and other leaders as they finish a course that they should hang it on their wall and remember that that's a Jewish charge to be a peacemaker. And that's the cover of my book, is that text, which kind of sums up the text, the theory, and the practice of inspiring us and, and hopefully, you know, teaching us a little bit of, of why and how we can all be uh, peacemakers within our own context. So with that, I want to wish you all a chad sameach and a shabbat shalom. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Rabbi Roth, for joining us today. Um, I would also like to thank our co sponsors, Temple Emmanuel. Uh, next week, our next program is going to be on Wednesday, June 8th. Um, we hope you can join us for Prosbowl Innovative Halachic Change or Gaming the System with Rabbi Zvi Hirschfield at 10 a.m. Pacific. Um, and thank you all so much for joining us today.
0: It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take Thanks. care.